Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. Wow. We're back. Um, this is Shireen, and this is It Can Happen. Oh, that's not even the name of the podcast. This is It Could Happen Here. I'm so sorry. Um, but last episode... Um, we talked about Syria and the history of how Hafez al-Assad eventually came into power and how he subsequently let his family become dictators of this country for over half a century and how they've destroyed it. But we are still in the 60s right now. So let's just continue from where we left off. Uh, last time I had just ended mentioning the Six-Day War uh, and how Syria was defeated in the Six Day War. This is a topic that should be episodes all on its own, but just to very, very roughly summarize, the Six Day War, as it's called, it's also called the 1967 War and the June War. It's interesting because Israelis call it the Six Day War, and that's become the term that everyone uses, but differing terms for differing people, I suppose. But essentially, on June 5th of 1967, just three weeks after it marked the 19th anniversary of its founding, Israel went to war with the armies of Egypt, Syria, and Jordan and defeated them, essentially. Uh, very, very rough summary. 
And this led to Israel capturing, aka stealing, the Golan Heights from Syria. And the roots of this war go all the way back to the 40s. And there are moments in history that led up to this moment. But it was a huge turning point in Middle Eastern history. And the consequences of it are still felt today across the region. And the outcome of this war basically altered the map of the Middle East for the foreseeable future. And it further blocked this path to any kind of potential peace between Israel and Palestine. Uh, and it just redrew the landscape of this conflict and expanded Israel's territorial claims and military dominance in the region. Um, they gained a lot of territory during this war and had the uh, help of the UN behind them. So, yeah, it's it was not good for Arab countries. So much more to get into there. But this war, essentially, when we're talking about Syrian history, changed everything. And I mentioned earlier in the last episode that when the Ba'ath Party took power in 63, uh, there was some more purging of the Syrian military and Assad removed uh, about 400 officers, which was the largest purge to date. But this had left their military weak and obviously did not help them in this June war. But uh, yeah, there's so much more there. I will try to get into that later another time. But the Arab defeat in this June war um, led to Israel stealing the Golan Heights from Syria, and this provoked a furious quarrel among Syria's leadership. The civilian leadership blamed military incompetence, and the military responded by criticizing the civilian leadership, which was led by Salah Shadid, who was uh, the person that was ruling the country. He had the most power at this point. Several high-ranking party members demanded that Hafez al-Assad resign, and an attempt was made to vote him out of the regional command. This motion was defeated by one vote, and this man was Abd al-Karim al-Jandi, who the anti-Assad members, they were hoping that he would succeed Assad as defense minister. But he became the deciding vote, and he said he did so in a comradely gesture. Remember this name? He will come back. But, uh... Yes, uh, Abdul Karim al-Jundi made it so Assad wasn't voted out. During the end of the war, Hafiz was approached by dissident Syrian military officers to oust the government, but at the time he actually refused because he believed a coup during that time would have helped Israel, not Syria. Which is very interesting because he eventually took power by a coup, but he refused at first because of the timing being wrong, Again, I think this just demonstrates his uh, unfortunately high intelligence for someone so bad. Anyway, as I mentioned, this war was a turning point, and it was also a turning point for Assad and the Ba'athist uh, Syria movement in general. It soon began a power struggle with Jadid for control over the country. Until then, Assad hadn't really shown ambition for high office, and he aroused little suspicion in others. No one really saw him as a threat. From the 1963 Syrian coup to the June War in 67, Assad did not play a leading role in politics, and he was usually overshadowed by his contemporaries. Patrick Seal was a British journalist and an author who specialized in the Middle East, and he wrote several books about the Assad family and Syria. 
Uh, and he said that Hafez was apparently content to be a solid member of the team without the aspiration to become number one. He also interviewed Hafez at one point, so he has a lot of good information, this Patrick Seal, which I'll mention throughout. So although Jadid was slow to see Assad's threat, and although Assad didn't appear like he wanted power from the outside, Shortly after the war, Assad began developing a network in the military and promoted friends and close relatives to high positions. Assad believed that Syria's defeat in the June war was Jadid's fault and that the accusations against himself were unjust. By this time, Jadid had total control of the regional command, whose members supported his policies. But Assad and Jadid began to differ on policy. Assad believed that Jadid's policy of a people's war, an armed guerrilla strategy, and class struggle had failed Syria, undermining its position. Although Jadid continued to champion the concept of a people's war even after the June war, Assad opposed it. He felt that the Palestinian guerrilla fighters had been given too much autonomy, and their raiding of Israel had made the war worse for the Arabs fighting. Jadid also had broken diplomatic relations with countries he deemed uh, reactionary like uh, Saudi Arabia and Jordan, and because of this, Syria did not receive aid from other Arab countries. While Jadid and his supporters prioritized socialism and the internal revolution, in quotes, Assad wanted the leadership to focus on foreign policy and the containment of Israel. The Ba'ath Party was divided over several issues, such as how the government could best use Syria's limited resources, the ideal relationship between the party and the people, the organization of the party, and whether the class struggle should end. The conflict between Assad and Jadid became the talk of the army and the party, with a, quote, duality of power noted between them. By the 4th Regional Congress and the 10th National Congress in September and October of 68, Assad had extended his grip on the army, and Jadid still controlled the party. At both congresses, Assad was outvoted on most issues, and his arguments were firmly rejected. The military's involvement in party politics was unpopular with the rank and file, as the gulf between Assad and Jadid widened. The civilian and military party bodies were forbidden to contact each other. Despite this, Assad was winning the race to accumulate power. Munif al-Razaz, who was ousted in the 1966 Syrian coup, noted that Jadid's fatal mistake was to attempt to govern the army through the party. Because Syria will always have... <sighs> their government is the military, essentially, is what I'm trying to say. Anyway, while Assad had taken control of the armed forces through his position as Minister of Defense, Jadid still controlled the security and intelligence sectors through Abdul Karim al-Jundi, who was the head of the National Security Bureau. Jundi, who was a paranoid, cruel man, he was feared throughout Syria, especially later in his life. In February of 1969, the Assad-Jadid conflict erupted in violent clashes through their respective protégés. There was Rafat al-Assad, who is Assad's brother, and he was a high-ranking military commander, and al-Jundi. So al-Jundi was the protege of Jadid, and Assad's brother, Rifat, was um, his protege, so to say. The reason for the violence was Rifat al-Assad's suspicion that al-Jundi was planning an attempt on his brother Hafez's life. 
The suspected assassin was interrogated and eventually confessed under torture. Acting on this information, Rafat argued that unless Jindi was removed from his post, that he and his brother were in danger. Okay, let's take a, a break. Uh, BRB, listen to this. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. And we're back. Wow. Okay. Let's continue. From the 25th to the 28th of February in 1969, the Assad brothers initiated, quote, something just short of a coup. Under Assad's authority, tanks were moved into Damascus, and the staffs of two party newspapers, the Al Baath and Al Thawra, as well as radio stations in Damascus and Aleppo, were replaced by Assad loyalists. 
Latakia and Tartus, which are two Alawite-dominated cities, they saw fierce scuffles ending with the overthrow of Jadid supporters from local posts. Shortly afterwards, a wave of arrests and Jundi loyalists began. On March 2nd, after a telephone argument with the head of military intelligence, El Duba, it is said that El Jundi committed suicide. When I mentioned this to my mom, she said, well, that's what they say. Because originally I'm reading this being like, okay, history. Obviously, you have to remember that there is always someone that writes the history. Um, so just pointing that out there, because she put that little nugget of information in my head. But as far as we're concerned in this summary, it is said that Jindy committed suicide after his loyalists began to be arrested and there was just continuing violence between his side and Al-Assad. So this led to Assad now being in control. However, he hesitated to push his advantage. Jadid continued to rule Syria and the regional command was unchanged. However, Assad influenced Jadid to moderate his policies. Class struggle was muted. Criticism of reactionary tendencies of other Arab states ceased. Some political prisoners were freed. A coalition of government was formed where the Ba'ath Party was in control and the Eastern Front, supported by al-Assad, was formed with Iraq and Jordan. Jadid's isolationist policies were curtailed, and Syria re-established diplomatic relations with many of its foes, which is what Assad wanted. And while Assad had been in de facto command of Syrian policies since 1969, Jadid and his supporters still held the trappings of power. After attending Jamal Abdel Nasser's funeral in Egypt, he was the president of Egypt, uh, Assad returned to Syria for the Emergency National Congress, where Assad was condemned by Jadid and his supporters, who still made up the majority of the party's delegates. However, before attending the Congress, Assad ordered his loyal troops to surround the building, housing the meeting. Again, this guy thinks ahead. He's too smart. I hate him. He's dead, though, so whatever. I still hate you. So as he's being criticized and as he's being condemned, he has troops surrounding this building. And so the criticism of Assad's political position continued, but it had a defeatist tone, with the majority of delegates believing that they had lost the battle. And even though Assad was eventually stripped of his government post at the Congress, these acts had little practical significance. When the National Congress ended on November 12th, 1970, Assad ordered loyalists to arrest leading members of Jadid's government. Although many mid-level officials were offered posts in Syrian embassies and abroad, Jadid refused, saying, If I ever take power, you will be dragged through the streets until you die. Assad imprisoned Jadid in Menze prison until his death. Despite the intense clusterfuck of everything that preceded this... <laughs> Surprise, uh, Hafez's coup was actually calm and bloodless. When he eventually had his coup to take power and succeeded, the only evidence of change to the outside world was the disappearance of newspapers, radio stations, and television stations. A temporary regional command was soon established, and on November 16th of 1970, the new government published its first decree. So only in a matter of days. A lot can happen, man. According to Patrick Seal, Assad's rule 
quote, began with an immediate considerable advantage. The government he displaced was so detested that any alternative came as a relief. He first tried to establish national unity, which he felt had been lost under the leadership of Eflach and Jadid. Assad differed from his predecessor at the outset, visiting local villages and hearing citizen complaints. The Syrian people felt that Assad's rise to power would maybe lead to change. And although Assad didn't democratize the country, he eased the government's repressive policies at the time. He cut prices for basic foodstuffs 15%, which won him support from ordinary citizens. Jadid's security services were purged, and some military criminal investigative powers were transferred to the police, and the confiscation of goods under Jadid was reversed. Restrictions on travel and trade with Lebanon were eased, and Assad encouraged growth in the private sector. While Assad supported most of Jadid's policies to begin with, he proved to be more pragmatic after he came to power. Let's take a little break here. We'll be right back to wrap this little history lesson up, and then you're free of, of me for the day. Okay. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. 
Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. So we're back. Um, before the break, we were talking about Assad coming into power and how his policies differed from Jadid's and how he made an effort to differentiate himself. However, most of Jadid's supporters, they faced a choice. Either continue working for the Ba'ath government under Assad or face repression. Assad had made it clear previously, from the beginning, that there would be no second chances in his words. However, in late 1970, he recruited support from the Ba'athist Old Guard who had supported Aflaq's leadership during the 1963-1966 power struggle. An estimated 2,000 former Ba'athists rejoined the party after hearing Assad's appeal. At the 11th National Congress, Assad assured party members that his leadership was a radical change from that of Jadid, and he would implement a, quote, corrective movement to return Syria to the true nationalist-socialist line. Assad turned the presidency, which had been known simply as, quote, head of state under Jadid, into a position of power during his rule. As the president became the main source of initiative in the government, his personality, values, strengths, and weaknesses became decisive for its direction and stability. Assad institutionalized a system where he had the final say, which weakened the powers of the collegial institutions of the party and state. As fidelity to the leader replaced ideological conviction later in his presidency, corruption became widespread. The state-sponsored cult of personality became pervasive, and as Assad's authority strengthened, he became the sole symbol of the government. And it sounds normal now, I guess, when you think of like a dictator's face being plastered over buildings and stuff, but it was very much like that in Syria. And it still is, as far as Bashar is concerned. But with Hafez, I mean, his image was plastered everywhere. You couldn't really escape it. He was the symbol of the Syrian government. And while Assad did not rule alone, he increasingly had the last word. None of the political elite would question a decision of his, and those who did were dismissed, removed from their positions, and stripped of their power. When Assad came to power, he increased the Alawite dominance of the security and intelligence sectors to a near monopoly. The coercive framework was under his control, weakening the state and party. The leading figures of the Alawite-dominated security system had family connections. Rafat al-Assad, for example, controlled the struggle companies, his brother, and then Assad's son-in-law, Aydin Makhlouf, was his second-in-command as commander of the presidential guard. Assad controlled the military through the Alawites, and the Alawites, with their high status, appointed and promoted based on their kinship and favor, rather than professional respect. Therefore, an Alawite elite emerged from these policies, with Assad in full control of the military and the Alawites holding all the power. Which is very interesting if you think back to the beginning of our first episode, where I mentioned that the Alawites are a religious minority and originally didn't have a lot of power in the government. And through Hafiz al-Assad's coming into power, the Alawites are suddenly elite and in control, and it's a huge flip from what it was decades prior. 
However, when Assad began pursuing a policy of economic liberalization, the state bureaucracy began to use their positions for personal gain. The state gave implementation rights to, quote, much of its development program to foreign firms and contractors, fueling a growing linkage between the state and private capital. Basically, what ensued was a huge spike in corruption. The channeling of external money through the state to private enterprises, quote, created growing opportunities for state elites' self-enrichment through corrupt manipulation of state market interchanges. Besides outright embezzlement, webs of shared interests in commissions and kickbacks grew between high officials, politicians, and business interests. The Alawite military security establishment got the greatest share of the money, obviously, and the Ba'ath Party and its leaders ruled a new class, defending their interests instead of those of the peasants and workers, who they were supposed to represent. This, coupled with growing Sunni disillusionment with the regime's mixture of statism, rural and sectarian favoritism, corruption, and new inequalities, fueled the growth of the Islamic movement. Because of this, the Muslim Brotherhood of Syria became the vanguard of anti-Ba'athist forces. The Brotherhood had historically been a vehicle for moderate Islam during its introduction to the Syrian political scene during the 1960s. Under the leadership of Mustafa al-Sabai, the Brotherhood had historically been a vehicle for moderate Islam during its introduction to the Syrian political scene during the 1960s. After Sabai's imprisonment and under Issam al-Attar's leadership, the Brotherhood developed into the ideological antithesis of Ba'athist rule. Because of their organizational capabilities, the Muslim Brotherhood grew tenfold from 1975 to 1978. The Islamic uprising began in the mid to late 1970s with attacks on prominent members of the Ba'ath Alawite elite. As the conflict worsened, a debate began in the party between hardliners, represented by Rafat al-Assad, and Ba'ath liberals, represented by Mahmoud al-Ayubi. The 7th Regional Congress in 1980 was held in an atmosphere of crisis. The party leadership, with the exception of Assad and his protégés, were criticized severely by the party delegates, who called for an anti-corruption campaign, a new, clean government curtailing the powers of the military security apparatus and political liberalization. The Sunni middle class and the radical left, believing that Ba'athist rule could be overthrown with an uprising, began collaborating with the Islamists. And, I mean, although they're called the Islamists, obviously they do not represent the entirety of Islam. Uh, similar to Christian radical groups um, that hold on to the name Christian, they don't represent the entirety of Christianity. Yada, 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 blah, 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 blah. And although the word Islam is in the word Islamist, uh, I wanted to draw attention to the fact that Islamism is not a form of the Muslim faith or an expression of Muslim piety. It is rather a political ideology that strives to derive legitimacy from Islam. So it's about political strategies that believe in a revival or a return to authentic, in quotes, Islamic practice in its totality. So it's a political ideology, not necessarily a religion. Um, I just want you guys to be aware of that because I think a lot of people don't understand what that means. Regardless, believing they had the upper hand in the conflict, beginning in 1980, the Islamists began a series of campaigns against government installations in Aleppo. The attacks became urban guerrilla warfare. 
the government began to lose control in the city. Those affected by Ba'athist repression began to rally behind the insurgents. The Ba'ath Party co-founder, Salahuddin al-Bitar, supported the uprising, rallying the old anti-military Ba'athists together. The increasing threat to the government's survival strengthened the hardliners who favored repression over concessions. Security forces began to purge all state, party, and social institutions in Syria and were sent to the northern provinces to quell the uprising. When this failed, hardliners began accusing the United States of fomenting and provoking the uprising and called for the reinstatement of, quote, revolutionary vigilance. After a failed attempt on Assad's life in June of 1980, the government began responding to the uprising with state terrorism. Under Rafat al-Assad, the Islamic prisoners at the Tadmur prison were massacred. Membership in the Muslim Brotherhood became a capital offense, and the government sent a death squad to kill Batad and Atar's former wife. The military court began condemning captured militants, which sometimes degenerated into indiscriminate killings. Little care was taken to distinguish Muslim Brotherhood hardliners from their passive supporters, and violence was met with violence. So essentially, this just led the Assad regime to murder a bunch of people, innocent, guilty, all of the above. So yeah, one of the many instances where the Assad regime was extremely violent and engaged in horrific state terrorism. So we're, I'm wrapping up the end of this one, and um, uh, there's going to be a bit of crossover over this next event in the following episode, but the final most atrocious violence conducted by the Syrian government during this time was the Hama massacre, which took place in February of 1982, when the government crushed the uprising. Helicopter gunships, bulldozers, and artillery bombardment raised the city, killing thousands of people. The Ba'ath government withstood the uprising, and it made Syria more totalitarian than ever before, strengthening Assad's position as the undisputed leader of Syria. That is where I'm going to wrap up for the day. I did want to, I don't know, maybe just like set the tone for what Hafez's rule was like. I talked to my mom a bit about this when I was preparing to record these and she reminded me of a bunch of things that I had forgotten about. One was that I was in Syria when Hafez was president uh, when I was younger. And I remember everyone being terrified to speak any kind of negative thing or even anything to each other. No one would dare speak a word on the phone, definitely not out loud to each other. There were all these whispers of the walls could hear you. No one trusted anybody. My mother described it as a culture of fear. And it 100% was. That's how Hafez ruled. It was through fear, through like utter terror. And I just had forgotten a bunch of details about what I remember growing up and like the phone being this like, you just assume it was always tapped. You assume anyone could always hear you. You can't trust anybody because you don't know what someone will do with the information. And there was a bit more that she mentioned that I wanted to just highlight that I didn't know where to incorporate in that timeline. But when the Iran-Iraq war happened, it was between 80 and 88, um, Hafez sided with Iran. So after this uh, and during, everything was about supporting Iran. So all Syrian factories, all the food, it was all dedicated to war efforts to support Iran. 
My older sister at the time was a really picky eater, and apparently one of the only things she ate were bananas. And my mom remembers that she couldn't find even a banana anywhere. Like, everything was hard to come by. It was really desperate times, even after the war ended. And every election, in quotes, was fraudulent. It was a joke. My grandmother um, uh, worked as a school teacher in Syria, and um, teachers are a civic position there. Really, like, most positions are governmental positions. And my grandma, during these elections, would throw out the no's and only include the yeses, because the only option was yes or no, if you wanted to continue Hafez's rule or not. Those were the only two options, and she told us that the no's were discarded immediately, and the only ones that were kept were the yeses. And eventually there was an election that determined that Hafez and his family would be in power forever. Al-Abid ya Hafez al-Asad was a phrase they used, and essentially this means until death or forever you will be in power. It does have his name in there, but it implies his whole family. So it's just, they gave him power forever. That is literally what that means. And yeah, I think um, there's so much more to talk about here. And I would love for my mom to just give me more information about this that I can share eventually. There's just so much. And this episode's already getting kind of long. So I'm going to wrap it up here. In the next episode, we'll be talking about Bashar and how he became the dictator of Syria and how he wasn't even meant to be the president of Syria. And yeah, a lot of interesting history that leads to some topical information that I think is important. So see you there if you want to. Bye. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.
This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people. You can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal history. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org.